This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Bill C-45, the marijuana legalization bill, has officially passed Senate. It is now heading for royal assent. Uh, Here's a clip from uh, independent Senator Tony Dean, who sponsored the federal government's uh, legalization bill. Well, we have seen in the Senate tonight a historic vote that ends 90 years of prohibition of cannabis in this country. 90 years of needless criminalization. Uh, 90 years of um, a just say no approach to drugs that hasn't worked. And here's what a liberal senator, uh, Peter Harder, had to say. This uh, uh, recreational drug, which we are now uh, controlling its, uh, its legal consumption of, but that does not, not in any way suggest this is now a party time. All right, let's bring in Brad Polos, instructor, Ted Rogers School of Management, Ryerson University. He is with us now. Brad, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hi, Scott. It still sounds like there's a few hurdles to cross here. There's still plenty of hurdles to be crossed in terms of figuring things out at the provincial level, and uh, I'm a little upset to hear it's not going to be party time as well. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that statement? Um, it's hard to say. It, 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 it's, I think it's actually going to play out differently across the country, and it's going to be based on how the different provinces have held, handled it. So if you go out to, say, Alberta and B.C., they're taking a much similar approach to what was taken in Colorado. Maybe not quite as much of a Wild West approach, but certainly lots of um, opportunity for private retail. There will be lots of innovation. There will be much more points of contact and than are going to be available in the eastern part of the province. So, or sorry, eastern part of the country. So, I think out there you'll see maybe a little bit more of a change in terms of people's lifestyle and just more visible sort of signs that we've made this change. Ontario and Quebec, I think you'll have to search high and low to find those signs. Uh, should we be surprised here, considering as you talk about uh, the various means of distribution across the country, depending on the province, it's the same for alcohol. It, it, are we much different? Does the does the the cannabis distribution system seem to mirror the attitude of the alcohol distribution system in all of these provinces? Uh, well, well, you're right that we do have these very different approaches say, East versus West in Canada to both alcohol and cannabis, I would argue that the, that the differences are different. So one of the big ones is going to be the, the severely limited number of points of presence in the eastern province, in all of the eastern provinces. Um, so in Ontario, 40 stores out of the gate, 60 by, you know, a year from now or so, and ultimately 150. There are 600 and some LCBOs, and then a whole bunch of beer stores, and then a whole bunch of um, grocery stores where you can also buy beer and wine. So it's, I think the big difference really is, is access. And that's one of the reasons why I don't think you're going to see the black market or the illicit market go away um, anytime soon, certainly not in Ontario. So, uh, what about change in government and over time? Do you think do you see things becoming more consistent across the country? I, I remember even Doug Ford said uh, prior to uh, the election in his campaign that he was willing to look at private distribution here, similar that to other provinces. Yeah, I, I think that over time you will see Ontario for sure, and probably ultimately Quebec and the other the maritime provinces relax their approach. Uh, they're being prudent. They're being typically conservative, <laughs> although, although it was the liberal government that came up with the approach. Um, 
but you know, how do you explain okay. that? I mean, because as you said, this is a liber- this is a liberal deal. In Ontario, uh, right up until recently, a liberal province. Why do you, how do you explain their attitude towards it? Well, I mean, I don't think it's a secret that we have a little bit more of a kind of Victorian or you know patriarchal society here in Ontario than we have out west. And I think, you know, the Liberal government uh, that we just got rid of were uh, skating on thin ice. They had to be very careful. So uh, governments never want to relax rules and then tighten them back up. So I just think that they were being very prudent from a political point of view, not from any other point of view. But just, And I'm not an expert in politics, but I, uh, my suspicion is that. Uh, a Tory senator, Leo Housakis, uh, said, this bill does not do what the overreaching goal says it does, which is to reduce the marijuana use among young people. Your thoughts on that? Um, when, when cannabis was legalized in Colorado, uh, use among youth didn't really change very much at all. I think that Canadian and certainly Ontario youth that want access to cannabis, they've already got it. Um, we're at, 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 at least at the margin, we're going to be reducing the illicit market. So to argue that we're going to have more children or more young people accessing cannabis, I think is it's just it's not accurate. Uh, they're talking about fall legislation. What will life be like after that? I, I remember when we were talking about getting beer and wine in grocery stores. Uh, there was this, this you know, well, it took forever. And then finally, when it did happen, uh, a lot thought the world would end. And, of course, the sun came up and set as it normally does. W- what is it going to be like uh, in Ontario after this is all legalized? I honestly don't think you're going to see a lot of material changes in your everyday life. Um, you won't have that many new consumers. At the margin, of course, some people will come back into using cannabis that did way back when and maybe want to now that it's legal. Perhaps for some people, it being illegal was enough to keep them away from using it. So perhaps at the margin, we'll see a few of those. And we may see some people experiment some people who've never tried it because it was illegal. But I honestly don't think that your, every, your day-to-day life is going to change very much. How do you think and, Ontarians are going to react once this becomes legal? Uh, do, do you think they're going to complain because of the way that it's been handled? Do you think they're going to be cautious? How, how do you think they're going to react once this all is presented to us? I think that, like almost any other political issue, most people will frame it through their own lens. So, for example, a cannabis user, which is about 15, maybe at the top end, 20% of Canadians, they're not going to be too happy because they're going to find all kinds of things to find wrong with this this rollout, especially in Ontario and Quebec. Uh, people who are against cannabis use, whether it's um, based on scientific knowledge or just some you know predisposition against it, they'll probably have lots to say about how the government's gone too far. So... People are going to just look at it through their own lens, and they'll they'll make that decision. Uh, I will say that I think the Ontario government has a heck of a lot more work to do if they actually want to achieve the stated goals of the, the legislation, though, which is keeping it out of hands of kids and getting rid of the illicit market. Uh, that's my next question. Are the provinces ready? Let's specifically talk about Ontario. We've heard that some are farther ahead on this than others. Where is Ontario on this? And and I guess it really wasn't the past government's problem, considering they probably knew where this was all going. 
Right. Well, so the Ontario government has so far stated that they'll have these 40 stores open on the day of legalization. They know roughly that that's going to be sometime in September. That's everybody's best guess. And while we don't have that date, it hasn't actually been announced, uh, unless I missed it this morning, then um, uh, I, I think the Ontario government will be ready. Uh, they've only got 40 stores to open, unlike, you know, Alberta, which will have several more. So, Do you think government or there will be complaints about that? Do you think people will complain, well, this isn't going to do anything to curb the black market if, the, if there's such limited distribution? Yeah, I mean, you're talking to somebody who complains about it all the time whenever I get an opportunity to. Again, I, I think that if you're going to have government policy, and if those policies have stated goals, then you should try to build the policy around achieving the goal. And the government of Ontario, I believe it was last September, came out with this you know, plan for the Ontario Cannabis Stores and the OCRC. And uh, since the day I, uh, I was first contacted about it, I've, I've complained. I just don't, I don't understand why they're taking such a minimalistic approach. The other thing is, quite frankly, as an entrepreneurship professor, I'm profoundly disappointed that there's no opportunity for private retail to take part here. Do you think that's just a matter of time, considering the change in government? I sure hope so. I I, I sure hope so. I, I think it would be very much in line with, you know, conservative ideology. So I've got my fingers crossed there. Brad Polos has been with his instructor, Ted Rogers School of Management, Ryerson University. Brad, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. Thank you. Let's bring in uh, Cam Batley, Executive Vice President of Aurora Cannabis and Chair of the Advocacy Committee for Cannabis Canada, the Trade Association for Licensed Producers. Cam is with us now. Cam, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Oh, I'm happy to do it. Uh, your thoughts on what happened today and in achieving this step and, and what still has to happen here? Well, let's begin with what an historic occasion it is. And it's a good day for Canada. Uh, it's a good day for Canadian public policy, and it's a good day for Canadian businesses that are participating in the cannabis sector. Um, there's a lot yet to be done. Uh, we still have to see the details of what the rollout of uh, retail will look like province by province. Um, but, you know, we're going to be doing something that's very rational, that's smart, that we're replacing a massive and very sophisticated black market with a legal and regulated one. Uh, and, and we're going to achieve that central uh, public policy objective of replacing that market uh, in a way that protects public health and public safety, and also creates opportunities for Canadian businesses. And significantly, it's not just in Canada. Uh, really, uh, leading Canadian companies like Aurora and a few others were inventing the legal regulated cannabis industry for the world. Uh, and, and it's been a while since we've seen Canadian companies uh, be the leaders on the world stage. It's a very exciting time. Uh, you're looking at this from a, a global perspective. Uh, people hear more from an Ontario perspective. Uh, 40 stores, is that going to do anything to curb a black market? You know, we have always at Aurora uh, been in favor of a diversified uh, sector, both in the production side and on the retail side. So there should be small, medium, and large players. And that's good for uh, for innovation, because competition drives innovation. So we would like to see uh, the Ontario plan evolve to allow for some participation by small businesses and entrepreneurs, just like uh, your previous guest Brad said. Um, that's a way, we think, uh, to make this system receive the, the best public acceptance and to be most sustainable, and also to share the economic benefits of the creation of a new industry as broadly as possible. It's a democratic approach. 
Uh, do you think it's a matter of time before, uh, especially with a change in government, that things change in Ontario? Uh, do you think, do you see consistency coming across the country as far as distribution? You know, I don't want to speculate on what the new government is, is going to do. Um, I do have a, a belief that over time, the retail systems across the country may harmonize to allow for private participation. And, and I do want to emphasize, there's been some very good work done by some of the provincial, uh, provincial agencies uh, in Ontario, uh, in New Brunswick. Uh, I, I don't think that that needs to be thrown out. We may find that there's room for participation on both the public and the private side. Um, but I do want to see the opportunity for small businesses and entrepreneurs uh, to participate in the creation of this new industry. We're certainly not the first. You must get a global perspective of how this is done. Uh, where is it done better? What can we learn from others? You know, the nice thing is, I don't think it's being done uh, better anywhere other than in Canada. Uh, we have the most well-developed and successful medical cannabis system in the world uh, that's worked exceedingly well for four years uh, without diversion to the black market, and it's being copied by countries around the world right now. We're the first developed country to move forward with a very rational policy of consumer legalization, uh, and other countries are studying very, very closely what we're doing, and I think we can anticipate that they will emulate us as well. Uh, so Canada clearly uh, is the world leader uh, with respect to rational cannabis policy and the creation of a brand new industry. Are the provinces, are we ready for this? I guess, are we ready for anything? Uh, you know, there's concerns about employment, there's concerns about enforcement, uh, as well as distribution and such. Uh, do you see the government being ready for this? I think federally and provincially we are ready, and especially when you take into account the fact that we're not inventing the use of cannabis here. Uh, cannabis in Canada is used extremely widely. We have one of the highest rates of cannabis use in the world. It's just that it's unregulated black market product. Uh, so, uh, yes, I think that this will go fairly smoothly. There will be some bumps in the road, and we need to anticipate that. Uh, there are some things that we need to enhance in terms of um, testing for impaired driving. Uh, everybody who uses cannabis, uh, whether as a medical patient or as a consumer, needs to understand that they have adult responsibilities here. Um, but in spite of those bumps in the road that, that we will get through uh, as a country, uh, we're, we're going to benefit from this. And we're going to benefit not just from uh, reducing youth access uh, to cannabis, which is something that's very important to me, um, but also by uh, the investment, the economic development, the new employment and the innovation uh, that this sector is spurring in this country and will drive around the world. Let me ask you this, Cam. Here's a question from a listener on the 40 outlets uh, with kind of a laugh. Currently, 40 outlets in Hamilton, nearby store, busier than Walmart. 40 in all of Ontario? Are you kidding? What is going to happen to these places? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, as I say, my suspicion is that uh, access to consumer cannabis, while well-regulated uh, in Ontario, will likely expand over time. Um, what the policies of the new government will be, once again, I, th I don't think we want to speculate, and I think we want to give them the time to uh, get a grasp on, on their priorities. Uh, they have a number of priorities announced in their platform that they're going to want to roll out. Um, I do hope that there will be some consideration uh, for uh, broadening the opportunities to allow for those entrepreneurs to, to get into the business as well. Cam Batley has been with us, Executive Vice President of Aurora Cannabis and Chair of the Advocacy Committee for Cannabis Canada, the Trade, uh, the trade Association for Licensed Producers. Cam, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
Always a pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Developing story, the U.S. President, uh, U.S. President Donald Trump said he will sign an executive order to help solve the family separation of immigrants uh, along the U.S.-Mexican border. Uh, lots coming in on Facebook on this. Charlene says the arsonist trying to put out the fire he originally started when realizing his biggest fans will admire him more by putting the fire out. Jennifer says couldn't agree more. Now suddenly he becomes the hero. Uh, Jesus, this man is a moron. Uh, let's bring in Barbara Hines, clinical professor of law, retired. Before we do that, I want to play you a uh, couple of clips. First, uh, here is a clip of the president talking about the situation and options. We got to stop separation of the families. But politically correct or not, we have a country that needs security, that needs safety, that has to be protected. All right, and uh, here's what uh, Ambassador Nikki Haley said uh, in regard to the UN and uh, and uh, declining their seat on the UN Human Rights Council. These countries strongly resist any effort to expose their abusive practices. In fact, that's why many of them run for a seat on the Human Rights Council in the first place. Let's bring in Barbara Hines, clinical professor of law, retired University of Texas School of Law, and is with us now. Barbara, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Uh, thank you for inviting me onto the program. And can you give us an update on where we are in regard to this executive order curbing the family separation? Uh, can, yes. What is an update on that? Well, the update is the executive order has not come out, but I think it's important um, to take uh, into account that uh, Donald Trump created this policy. There was no requirement the families be separated. There was no um, requirement that uh, children be uh, put into these uh, cages and then shipped off um, miles away from their parents. So this is a crisis that Donald Trump generated to hold children hostage to achieve um, his border wall and other attempts to limit immigration in the United States. Is he stepping back now by this? Um, he is stepping back. It depends on what the executive order says. Um, he may use this as a way to detain families much longer um, uh, in uh, uh, detention centers. Uh, so children might be detained longer with their parents, which from a human rights standpoint, from a child advocacy standpoint, is also unacceptable. So he's created this crisis, and now he's going to act as if he's solving it. Uh, is it is it clear at this point whether he will sign this order? At what point is that right now? No, it's not clear. And I think because um, he has he says so many different things and then changes his mind. But what we know right now is that more than two thousand three hundred children are being held hostage um, and have been taken away from their parents and have been sent to remote locations, and their parents are in separate detention centers around the country in the United States. As you said when we started talking, um, Barbara, that this is something that he has created. How can he blame the Democrats and Congress when he controls both chambers in Congress? Like, he has a majority here, what we call in Canada. How can he blame anyone else for this? He really can't blame anyone else. He's tried to tie this into border security, but these are asylum seekers who have the right under international law and under the United States law to come to the border and seek asylum. 
So when he talks about the rule of law and enforcing the law, it's important to remember that we have a series of laws. One is prosecution for people that enter the United States unlawfully, which it does not have to be across the board. But we have also laws that require due process, constitutional protections, the right to family, and more importantly, the right to apply for asylum. Do Americans buy this? I mean, when he stands up and says, hey, it's not my fault, Congress won't won't do anything, and you control Congress, like, obviously, Americans are, are smart people. What, how, can they, how can he sit there and say this with a, fr- a straight face, just assuming they'll believe him? Well, since he's been elected, we have a history of him saying outrageous things which are right. not true. Right. So this is one more example, in my opinion, certainly based on what asylum law is and what is actually happening right now. Um, the majority of Americans are horrified at this policy. But he is talking to his base, and his base thinks that it doesn't really matter. We are going to stop immigration at all costs, including holding small children hostage to achieve their goals. Is this just all part of art of the deal? He goes in like a bull in a china shop, moves to extremes, and then come and then backtracks on on, on issues. Uh, is that what's happened here? Well, on the immigration front, he really hasn't fast-tracked. In fact, um, it's gotten progressively worse. But there hasn't been the outcry so, that there is now. There has not been the outcry that there has been now. So, But in answer to your question, is he going to come up with some solution? On the immigration front, he has not come up with any solution. He has refused to come to any compromise unless his border wall is built. So this uh, executive order to curb uh, family separation, we don't know any details on what that will entail at this point, do we? What we are, what I'm afraid of is that it is going to, um, uh, it is going to provide for long-term detention of children with their parents in detention centers. And um, that is a really bad thing for children. Um, The American Association of Pediatrics, Pediatricians has come out. There have been studies that children should not be um, held in detention centers. And it reminds me of the Hutto case in 2007 in which I represented a Canadian child um, who was held in a detention center in Hutto, Texas, in Taylor. And so once again, we're seeing this um, repeat itself. And children should not be held in detention centers Um, even if they're with their parents. There are many alternatives to um, addressing a refugee issue and the reasons why um, families are fleeing from Central America. And it's certainly not to separate them, but it's also not to um, provide for long-term detention of children under any circumstances. Uh, Wow, this is going to be a long-term problem for a president that doesn't really seem to have an endgame here. Uh, is this the largest backlash that Trump has received since becoming president? I mean, we, we, as you mentioned, there's certainly lots of flip-flops. There's certainly, uh, it, it's certainly um, a, a new way for a president to conduct themselves. Uh, that being said, is this the first time there's been this kind of backlash against him, do you think? Um, I think there, there is. There was certainly an outcry over the Muslim ban. Right. But I think what's different about this is this really has cut into the Republican base. 
not the hardcore anti-immigrant white nationalists that support him, but um, into um, other Republicans. I think that that um, I am um, surprised, uh, not surprised because of the morality of it and the inhumanity of his policies, but he might be surprised at the outcry over this treatment of children. Uh, considering he, that's what motivated him to go into Syria was when he saw he saw footage of of the kids and, and the chemical warfare that was going on there. It's odd that this doesn't move him the same way. No, um, you know, because he is so fixated on, um, you know, on the border wall, and you know, making America great, which means making, in my opinion, you know, making America what it looked like in the 50s, which was not, which was, you know, fewer immigrants, fewer um, people of color in the United States. And that has been his message from the beginning. Um, And I think this is just part of his strategy. How will this separate the Republican Party? As you mentioned, uh, even hardcore uh, Republicans are, are disagreeing with this. He can't pass it through his own his own House, his own Congress. Mm-hmm. How is this separating the Republican Party? And and it seems that 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 Trump is just setting himself farther and farther adrift here. Well, I'm not a political scientist, and so I haven't really looked at you know the data other than what I you know have been reading. So what I would say is that I think he is just like the recent elections or all of the elections since um, Trump was uh, um, the state elections, the local elections that have been held since um, he was elected. He is losing and he is losing suburban women. He is losing in the more moderate, um, independent swath of of uh, voters that sometimes vote Republican and sometimes vote Democrats. So I think this is a problem for him, and that's why I think the Republicans are scrambling. Where do you think this is going, Barbara? I mean, this is not something that can be solved uh, quickly. It's much like the trade uh, situation that that is brewing. Um, where, Where do you think this is going? How does he come out of this with a win? Well, I don't think he can come out of it with a win. So that's the first thing. I don't think this strategy is winnable. It's immoral. It's inhumane. Uh, All of us that are parents, when you think about losing your child, for example, at the supermarket, Mm. um, and how traumatic that is for your child. Um, But there is a court case pending in San Diego. There's a request by the American Civil Liberties Union for a national injunction to stop this practice. So we're going to Last see similar. Week, so we're going to see similar retaliation than we saw with the Muslim ban. Yes. So, well, I don't know if it's, we may see similar. We may see courts setting limits on this policy. And the judge wrote an opinion um, two weeks ago about um, uh, uh, denying the government's motion to dismiss, and his language was quite strong, saying that. If this policy is actually true, it shocks the conscience, uh-huh. uh, the moral conscience of the United States. So that case is pending, and that may influence um, how this policy ends. What about the significance of Nikki Haley pulling out of the U.N. Human Rights Council? Well, I think it's hypocritical. Um, I just listened to the clip that you um, proposed. I mean, we... 
if the United States at one point thought that um, we were a moral leader, um, we certainly have no um, right at this point to criticize the policies of other countries um, if this is our policy. Uh, how does the world view this? Uh, the prime minister spoke up yesterday here about, or sorry, today, but didn't yesterday, refused to get involved. It doesn't seem like other world leader, leaders are commenting on this. Do you think this is, they're going to stay out of Trump's business here? Uh, I don't really know. I hope that people around the world um, stand up to this policy because it, you know, um, it's immoral. It's unthinkable. Um, there are some very dark historical parallels. Um, and, you know, children should not be held hostage for political gains. What would have happened if, if Donald Trump had not signed this and, and made these people criminals? How would this, how would they be processed? What would have happened if he hadn't signed all this in? Yes. So, so what can happen when an asylum... So first of all, there, there is no um, absolute uh, standard that all people who come to the United States and cross the border without documents should be prosecuted. Prosecutors have widespread discretion in all aspects of criminal law, and I'm sure it's like that in Canada as well. And that is that you pick and choose who you're going to prosecute. Mm -hmm. So generally, families were not prosecuted for the first time entry into the United States. And some families were released um, so that they could pursue their asylum claims and they could be released into the community Others were sent to these family detention centers, which many of us have been opposing for years. Um, and because of litigation, they were generally held about 20 days, and then they were released to pursue their asylum claims. There are many alternatives. Um, there's no reason to detain an asylum seeker in the first place. Um, but there certainly was not um, across-the-board prosecution of parents and there was not a deliberate policy of separation. And this, the reasoning behind this policy is it's supposed to be a deterrent. Is that correct? In other words, if you know you're going to be separated from your kids, you're not going to try right. to put them through this. That's Did, right. And under, and under asylum law, um, under U.S. asylum law, um, deterrence um, is not, this is a civil proceeding. Right. Deterrence is not supposed to be a consideration. That is a violation of our international law and our asylum policy. Um, but yes, that is what they've gone back and forth. They've tried to deny that's not what it is. But then there's been many other times that they have talked publicly about a deterrence policy. Uh, does d does this administration realize that even though what is being done to these people and being put in cages is inhumane, that it's still probably better than where they came from, therefore it would not be a deterrent? It's still better than their alternative? So there have been many studies on this because under the Obama administration, he began family detention. Uh, in 2000, and, well, uh, the second iteration of this was in 2014. And so some of this did begin under the Democrats. But there have been numerous studies by academics since 2014, which show that violence and insecurity is the primary motivating factor um, 
sending people out of countries in Central America. It's the violence, it's the persecution, it's the insecurity, and people are going to keep coming. And so, um, as um, many people have proposed, diplomats and people that have worked in the government of the United States, in order to deal with um, these migration issues, one has to address the root causes of migration. That was exactly where I was going next. Uh, do we need to do more? Uh, do, uh, do we need to, does the U.S. And, and other countries, do they need to update these systems? Do they need to update these immigration systems? Or should we be concentrating our efforts on solving the problems that's making these people leave their homeland in the first place? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. One of the things I also wanted to add is that you cannot apply for international refugee protection in your home country. You have to be out of your country of um, citizenship or last um, residence. So in other words, you have to be in a refugee camp, let's say in Lebanon, or you have to be out of Central America. And that is, you know, international law since the Refugee Convention was written after World War II. So, um, so yes, we should be doing more. Um, President Obama had a very small program, not big enough, of family reunification with um, children who were in danger, who had family in the United States. We need a regional solution, which would be a refugee program throughout um, the region, and really thinking very strategically and very thoughtfully about what can be done in Central America to end the gang violence, to end the, the, the many factors that push people out of their homes. You know, many of us don't want to be involved in other people's business, but is this perhaps what happens when we're not? Yes, and of course, you know, people have been migrating for years and years and years and years. And um, one of the other things I might mention is that unauthorized migration to the United States is at all-time lows, hmm. <laughs> except for Central Americans. There are fewer Mexicans coming to the United States. And so one needs to look at the root causes and what can we do so that people are not forced to make this journey. For the many, many Central Americans that I've worked with over the last, you know, four years for sure, you know, none of them are saying, gee, I wish I could make this trip. Yeah. They're desperate. They are trying their families because nobody else is going to leave under those circumstances where are these camps going under donald trump's administration i mean it seems that these will drag on and drag on and drag on and it'll, it'll be similar to guantanamo bay well um i don't know yet i think we really have to wait to see um what the response is in congress what happens in the midterms and what happens with the court case Yes, there is a lot to go on in the next year or so. That is true. All right, Barbara Hines has been with us, clinical professor of law, retired University of Texas School of Law. Barbara, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Okay, thank you for the invitation. It was great to talk to you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A lot of chatter in regard to uh, the Singapore summit. Uh, We went from literally fire and fury and who has the biggest button to 
uh, an actual meeting between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump. Of course, uh, the hope is the lowering of sanctions, the dropping of sanctions for North Korea, and of course, in return for uh, security and such and denuclearization. Now, South Korea is urging the leader of North Korea to present a plan with steps on how they're going to move forward towards denuclearization. Should this perhaps not have been done before the meeting or the summit even happened? Let's bring in Marius Grinius, former Canadian ambassador to Vietnam, North and South Korea, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, and on the line with us now. Marius, thank you very much for taking the time. We appreciate this. My pleasure to join you. Uh, Many said that the Singapore summit was big on pageantry, but low on concrete results. Is that accurate? That's uh, fairly accurate in the sense that, uh, yes, the pageantry, the the extravaganza was there, but there is a joint statement, and uh, although... The, the the four main, shall we say, commitments are pretty woolly. Uh, they're there, including uh, the fact that um, uh, President Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un have committed to and agreed to start negotiations on denuclearization and uh, just uh, to have better uh, bilateral relations and a, and a couple of other things. So, uh, it's there, uh, but now everybody's waiting to see when the negotiations will actually start and exactly what is on the table. I think uh, there's uh, a lot of uh, wooliness about uh, what complete uh, or what denuclearization of uh, the, the Korean Peninsula actually means. That is my next question. Is there a clear definition of what denuclearization means or the security guarantees or the release of those economic sanctions? And normally, isn't all of this hammered out before the leaders get together? Well, uh, normally uh, when we're talking summits, uh, we're, we're talking a long lead time, lots of negotiations between uh, the two sides at a lower level, uh, hammering everything out in great detail. And then, of course, uh, the two leaders show up, uh, shake hands and uh, sign off and, uh, you know, get all the uh, get all the kudos. In this case, of course, it's all been kind of uh, backwards with, uh, I think, uh, Kim being quite surprised when uh, when Trump said yes to a to a meeting and then of course we had the on on again off again issues and uh, finally they they did meet so it's very it's quite uh, different from what one what one would uh, expect but uh, there seems to be at least an agreement to to move forward is it a different journey to the same spot, though. At the end of the day, instead of, you know, Donald Trump has said, well, we're going to get together, we're going to shake hands, we're going to see if we like each other, and then uh, we'll go away and we'll let the, the other heads try to figure it all out. At the end, will we end up at the same place that we have for past decades? That is very possible because it's all been said before, uh, including even the same type of language like denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, uh, security assurances. It's all been said before. 
and uh, one hopes that uh, this time uh, both sides uh, will be serious about it. And certainly South Korea, President Moon Jae-in, who has really been the catalyst to get the stuff uh, going, uh, by uh, by the invitation to the Olympics and then actually meeting in Panmunjom in April, uh, he of course has been uh, been really pushing that uh, things happen, and uh, well, we hope that he will succeed. The headline reads: South Korea urges North to present a plan uh, for denuclearization. Has the U.S. or South Korea or anybody offered North Korea a plan on how they're going to help them with sanctions economically or make them feel more secure? Well, Trump uh, has said, "Hey, look at those uh, beaches when you're firing off uh, missiles. Uh, There should be condos there." (laughs) So uh, we're well on the way. But um, uh, no, I think that that's the that's the uh, the critical issue to actually to start the negotiations in a formal sense to <clears throat> hammer out things like uh, what's actually on the table. What do they mean by denuclearization? Is it uh, is it something that is front end loaded, or what I think the Korean North Koreans would like, uh, kind of step by step, uh, extend uh, kind of ex- uh, extended uh, as far out as uh, possible. There's uh, certainly the question of. Uh, what security sanctions uh, really mean. Uh, Secretary of State Pompeo has been tap dancing on that. Uh, he's been very coy and has really said nothing except that, yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll guarantee uh, the regime's uh, survival. There, there are, of course, all the, uh, all the other uh, questions about... Uh, whether missiles, what kind of missiles are are on, should be on the table, will be on the table, production facilities uh, for plutonium. So, are we moving closer towards those discussions? Because you would get the impression, the way North, or sorry, South Korea is talking now, that they feel that North Korea is dragging their feet. Is the ball in North Korea's court at this point? I think it's the ball is solidly in both the United States court and uh, North Korea's. They, they have to bite the bullet and say, here, we're starting the negotiations, here's the time and place, and here's uh, the agenda. You don't really need uh, a roadmap to, to get these uh, discussions going. Was this summit just a distraction to buy more time? We do this, now we take the next six months, eight months, a year, whatever, trying to figure out what our next step is. Well, that's uh, certainly uh, a suspicion, if you like. Uh, China and uh, Russia have already talked about uh, about, uh, how perhaps UN sanctions should be lifted. Uh, the, The United States, of course, have said and South Korea have said we're not lifting any sanctions um, until until uh, North Korea shows concretely that they are denuclearizing. Uh, but uh, exactly what does that mean? And do you keep that discipline of UN sanctions when uh, when China's the main uh, player in terms of sanctions? Uh, Trump immediately canceled war games and military exercises, whatever you want to call it. Uh, how much of an impact does that have? Is that a a goodwill gesture? 
Well, it, um, if, if one puts the most positive spin on it, uh, the uh, Trump has done a goodwill uh, gesture uh, when, uh, when, in actual fact, uh, he surprised and didn't uh, consult with uh, uh, South Korea or his own uh, military advisors. The irony here is that, uh, according to President Moon, uh, Kim Jong Un was quite happy to uh, to have the uh, the joint South Korean U.S. Uh, military exercises to to carry on, and uh, so Trump uh, sort of gives this and oh okay maybe it'll work uh, if if they start uh, uh, becoming uh, becoming more serious about the uh, the, the negotiations themselves. Uh, Kim Jong-un uh, recently meeting with China. What's their role in, in, in all of this? China's the big, uh, the big player. And uh, for a while, I think uh, uh, Xi Jinping, pre- uh, Chinese president, uh, was uh, feeling a little bit on the outside when you had this frenzy of North-South uh, summits with, and then the, prom- the promise of uh, a... Um, a summit with uh, with Trump, so they were feeling a, a little bit uh, lonely, if you like. Mm. And uh, but uh, Kim Jong Un very astutely uh, did the uh, kowtowing, did the pilgrimage to uh, to Beijing uh, back in back in March, and uh, has uh, has really gotten the. Uh, the Chinese North Korean relationship, which was really spiraling uh, downwards and had been for a couple of years, uh, back on uh, on track. So again, uh, uh, Kim Jong Un has played a really good game on that, and it's for China's benefit too, because uh, China, of course, is playing. A bigger game where where the North Korean issue is is a sideshow uh, because uh, we're talking about the new great game between an ascendant China and uh, with global ambitions and uh, a United States that looks uh, that appears to be in in retreat right across uh, the board. Mm. So other games are are certainly out there but uh, but uh, the north korean one is uh, is one of the main ones so is china skeptical of this deal or are they maneuvering so it plays into their hands as much as it does north korea's i i think they it it does they they will um, they'll play it whichever way they're not. I don't think they're all that pleased uh, to have a nuclear weapon state on their on their border. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, they're they they continue to be the main supporter, the main sponsor of uh, North Korea, and North Korea knows that from an economic uh, point of view, from uh, their political history, etc. So uh, it's. Uh, they're in a sweet spot, China. They uh, they can say, "Hey, this is all between uh, North Korea and uh, the United States. It has nothing to do with us. Go and uh, go and sort these things out." And in the meantime, of course, they're watching very, very uh, carefully. Uh, cessation of uh, of military exercises. That's a plus uh, for China. Yeah, they must be happy the states has canceled those, and even uh, Trump talking about pulling out. 
Exactly. So all of this uh, plays very well into into China's uh, China's hand, and uh, they're, 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 they can sort of sit back in the background, uh, sort of say the right things about denuclearization and all of that kind of stuff. But uh, you know, they they can just watch this uh, parade and uh, take a, uh, and take advantage of it in every sense. So is everyone involved here settling in for a long negotiation to get this accomplished, or could anything derail this? Well, first of all, the main, I guess the main event, of course, is the, the negotiation on, uh, on uh, nuclear weapons. But in the meantime, of course, uh, President Moon has moved very quickly forward. Uh, if uh, if one looks at the Panmunjom uh, declaration that he signed with Kim Jong Un back in uh, back in uh, April, end of April, uh, th- unlike the U.S. North Korea joint statement, the Panmunjom declaration is is very specific. Uh, that it talks about a hotline. It talks about military to military talks to lessen. Uh, tensions. It talks about opening a joint liaison office. Uh, they're talking about more joint games, uh, joint teams at the Asian Games. Uh, they're they're talking about a Red Cross uh, family reunions, which actually are are meetings, but they don't they're not able to uh, follow up uh, when they do meet, and uh, they the, it's been a political football and. Um, and uh, the uh, talk about how to move from a uh, an armistice to some sort of peace agreement or treaty the, the thing that is not on the uh, not on the table for discussion is uh, New- north korea's terrible uh, egregious uh, human rights record and you know kim jong un still has about 120,000 political prisoners in the, in his gulag how will Kim Jong-un respond to South Korea's urgency to get something, to put something forward? Well, it's, uh, they will probably play uh, the same game as, uh, uh, as his father did, Kim Jong-il, uh, when, uh, when uh, the, the previous, uh, two, uh, two previous uh, South Korean presidents went to visit uh, him in, uh, in uh, Pyongyang, uh, this was the start of sunshine policy and South Korean engagement, and uh, the North Korean side kept uh, kept asking for more, whether it was in the form of money, uh, food, uh, energy, all of that. And uh, certainly, uh, President Moon has talked about peaceful coexistence and co-prosperity. So Moon is lining up, and he's leave, he's going to be talking to Putin uh, in Moscow tomorrow. Uh, and I think the the South Korean bigger uh, plan is to get economic uh, projects, special economic zones uh, that uh, that would be on the Chinese North Korean border, the Russian North Korean border, and on the. South and North Korean uh, borders. So there's a lot of possibility in terms of energy, railways, um, 
uh, electrical grids, all is out there. And uh, I'm sure that Kim Jong-un is uh, waiting to, to be a beneficiary of all that. Is Donald Trump still engaged in all of this, or is it over as far as he's concerned, and he's letting other people deal with it? Well, he... Um, uh, he, he seems to be more uh, focused on Canada uh, these days. Well, and, and, and uh, it, that, that actually brings up my next point, Marius. Like, what happens if all of a sudden he snaps and turns on Kim Jong-un the way he did the G7? Well, it's, uh, I, I do hope that uh, a, a sort of more uh, adult-like, wiser uh, people like uh, Defense Secretary Mattis will... We'll, we'll keep things in uh, line and, uh, and quite, uh, uh, quite even. Do you think Donald Trump will start tweeting about this? Do you think he'll stay out of it and let smarter minds try to work it out? Or will he sit and, st- and fight this on the Twittersphere? Well, it will depend on what kind of criticism uh, he may uh, he may get and how he reacts to it. I think uh, for for the time being, it looks like he's uh, he'll be content to say, "Okay, Pompeo, I've, I'm handing this off. Get out there and uh, negotiate." So it will take some time before he perhaps uh, focuses back on uh, on North Korea. Is the rest of the the rest of the players fine with that? They're they're not. Uh, there there's uh, there are differences of view uh, from what I can see. Uh, certainly, South Korea would uh, President Moon would really continue to be pushing for de-escalation of uh, tension, better inter-Korean uh, relations, all of that, which is which is good. The, um, as I mentioned, China is kind of sitting back. Uh, Russia will listen to President Moon and see what kind of uh, what kind of economic possibilities uh, will be out there. Japan is the one, uh, uh, and uh, Prime Minister Abe is probably the the one who is uh, most concerned. Because number one, uh, all all those missiles can hit any part of uh, Japan, including uh, Tokyo. Hmm. Uh, the Japanese-North Korean relationship is uh, almost pretty well non-existent, and then you have the issue of abductees, Japanese yeah. uh, people who have been. Uh, secretly abducted and nobody seems to know what happened uh, to them. So there are political issues out there, but the bigger one, of course, is uh, the security issues. And Abe, uh, given what uh, how Trump has blindsided uh, South Korea in terms of uh, the cancellation of uh, joint exercises, I think that Abe would uh, would be looking for... Uh, uh, other for uh, reassurance that uh, hmm. that he will not be blindsided, and uh, again, there's a lot of tap dancing uh, going on by Bonnie uh, Pompeo. Marius Grinius, I'm going to have to let you go there. Former and Canadian ambassador to Vietnam, North and South Korea, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Marius, thank you so much for the time and expertise. Much appreciated. My pleasure, sir. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML.